acid funk song with the singer doing the, I don't know, call and response call routine and response. with the with the, with the, the whitest man that yeah. Borman yeah. could find. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. 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 Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Everybody, it's one fucking hour time. I, of course, am Evan Husney. Joined here, we got Mr. Big Tom, Mr. Big T. What's going on, Tom? Hello, Big Evan. <laughs> and we got um, Mr. Marcus Herring. Marcus, sup, man? Sup, guys. Just happy to be here again, as usual. That's right. And today we have our uh, special guest returning here for, I think, his third ep on the show. Everybody, uh, welcome here all the way from the Austin Film Society. We got uh, Lars Nilsson. What's going on, Lars? I, you know, I'm just hanging around in my home. <laughs> right. You're not at cir- you're not at uh, Half Price Books in the corner? <laughs> no, this is my home. Okay. It looks <laughs> like the, the Library of Congress. Yeah. That's a great look. I really... No, I love that. Yeah. Like a man a learned man in his library this is this is not a set that i that i constructed this is this is actually my office it's not a zoom it's background awesome. okay amazing yeah um <laughs> that's a good look it's a good look yeah i love it uh um, but yeah welcome back returning champion uh yeah you we've done we've been down some uh wild cinematic corridors we did uh with lars you did uh and the marbles uh, all the marbles. Right. All the marbles. You guys love. <laughs> yeah, I love. Oh. <laughs> it's <guys>. fine. <laughs> I ended up loving it. I did. Yeah, it's so yeah. cool. All right. It's a okay. good. It's a fun curio. And Lars also joined us uh, not too far back when we did our first no. Igmar Bir- Birdman episode, which was <laughs> on the Virgin Spring, which was awesome. Now that one I hated. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll make up for it. No, and we'll I'll just... be back for uh, one fucking hour of the Wolf. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that is going to have to happen. Think of that. Yeah, we should only do our movies. Yeah. You know, yeah. the Hourglass Sanatorium. Oh, you know, good idea. One we fucking Hourglass hour Sanatorium. Yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah. Forty-eight uh, hours. We could do that. Okay. Um, fucking one, one fucking forty-eight hours. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right, everybody. Makes a lot of sense. All right. All right. Good well, night, everybody. Yeah. All right. Thanks, well, thanks a lot. Motherfucking goddamn <laughs> show. All right. So. Um, oh, okay. Okay. All right, so this is, of course, uh, the show where we talk about one movie for one fucking hour. Tonight is episode 67. You voted for tonight's movie, everybody. Of course, we're doing this new little thing here on the show where we're picking movies that are corresponding numerically with the episode number. So we put up four movies from 1967 on our Instagram page. You guys voted and chose tonight's film, which is John Borman's Point Blank. Awesome movie from 1967. Uh, but before we start the clock, guys, I just wanted to do one quick little piece of business here, which is to remind everybody that we've recently launched, finally, we've teased it for a long time, we, we teased it at the end of our live show, which, uh, which was amazing, by the way, I had a blast on our first ever live show last fun. week, holy shit, that was great, um, but we have launched our Patreon, uh, officially, patreon.com slash one fucking hour just for $5 a month, you can subscribe, and we are recording audio commentary tracks, feature-length audio commentary tracks to all sorts of different types of movies that are only available there. And our first one out of the gate is available 
We did a audio commentary track to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We had a fucking blast doing that. So fun. Yeah, it was the best. It really, really was. That yeah. maybe we, right when we were finished, we were like, maybe this should have been the show, the audio <laughs> commentary it's show. Like, we're just you know? scrambling this whole dumb hour <laughs> concept <laughs> thing. Just doing, you know. Anyway, yeah. that was my feeling. That was my what my gut was telling me. No, but anyway, but, we're gonna do both for now. We're so. gonna do both, and it was super rewarding. I had a blast. We were able to go super deep and detailed into all the great, you know, creative minds and creative choices. Tom had a lot of brilliant, like uh, truly absurdist observations like he normally does, his signature move there uh, on <laughs> on that movie. So it was very fun. Uh, but anyway, so that's the Patreon. Patreon.com slash one fucking hour. Sign up now. But there's also other little piece of breaking news that we should also yeah. discuss, which is very like fortuitous or I guess or just it's, odd. It's downright spooky, it's spooky in our neck of the woods. Yeah, it is. And I feel like, yeah, this is very strange. But just a few weeks ago... Not even two weeks ago from when we were recording this, we did one fucking hour on Lucifer Rising for Marcus's Can birthday. Can I mention? Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you, Evan. Sure. Evan it's just that um, I was just reading closely what the news is. Okay. His death occurred on May 11th, and there was a lag time until oh. like yesterday. So when the hell did we record that? <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Yeah, like, I'm going to look it up. I think I'm we killed Kenneth Anger. So. Oh, well. But anyway, so here's to the man. Well, we didn't say, but yes, Kenneth Anger officially passed away. Um, it was in the news a few days ago, and it just it's crazy. It's absolutely insane, the timing of all this. But um, yeah, man, RIP. And I guess while, while I'm going to look this up, because I want to make sure we didn't kill him, um lars uh you've had some interactions with uh with mr anger hadn't you well well kind of well well okay. yeah i did i had an yeah. interaction but it was a long time ago it was like 26 years ago oh wow <laughs> um he came to austin uh and i was uh you know i was eight years old what do i know right. um no i was uh i was 25 years old <laughs> he came to austin and uh um <laughs> he was supposed to do this show at I think um, like a, a fairly substantial theater here um, on campus at the University uh -huh. of Texas, which is uh, it probably has like 150 seats or whatever. And so uh, I, I ran out and bought a ticket for it. I had seen you know his the old like Mystic Fire video or whatever tape mm -hmm. of, uh, of some of his films. We love and, that. Uh, and and I liked them. And it was like oh Kenneth Anger in person showing his. Um, his like whatever it was like his uh 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 black magic cycle or something uh, yeah. magic lantern magic cycle? lantern no yeah, no cycle. no no it was like it was actually a new it, was cycle? The, it was like the um oh magique something or other it was in french okay, okay. it was something completely different but it was it was basically wow, everything dope. from like fireworks and like puce moment and like all the early ones all oh, the way okay. up through um lucifer rising so cool. um and he was showing it. And what I didn't know is that he was, he was, what ends up happening is apparently it doesn't sell any tickets, you know, mm. or it sells like literally 20 tickets. Oh, so they moved the venue to a classroom at the University of Texas. Oh and the God. classroom ends up being downstairs. Um, <laughs> like, and it's, there's a, like a leak going the whole time. I mean, there's actually like buckets in the room. Oh my where, like, God. Water's leaking. God. And it's like a class. It's not even like, it's not like a big um, classroom that's like an auditorium. It's just like, a classroom that has like a table with like these shitty little carpeted, you know, seats and everything. <laughs> um, so nice. I, uh, I, I, uh, I got there and, uh, my girlfriend at the time and I had made some uh, mushroom tea 
And I was normally just like, what do you, you know, a cap or two, you know, some stems or whatever. But like, I should need mushroom tea. And it was the first time I ever did that. Oh, what shit. I didn't realize is you get so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, Blue Jay Way shit, you know, like, like uh, drinking that stuff. And uh, so, it's so like, we take it, we go and we go to this thing and we're in a little classroom with fucking Kenneth Anger. With like some AV geek who's set up with a 16 millimeter projector in all wow. these brand new lab cans of 16 millimeter film because wow. they're completely Beautiful. newly struck 16s. Oh, uh, cool! And Kenneth Anger is just kind of standing around talking, and then he comes over and he's like, "Hello, everyone!" You know, speaking in tongues or something, and he's just just like, "These are th- this is a film that I made," and every single one of these films, and he shows twelve films. You know, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, and and wow. everything, all these amazing Beautiful. films. Beautiful. He introduces each one wow. at like this great length. So you got like the projectionist kind of spooling it up, slot loading it, all those little sounds, and Kenneth Anger is telling these stories, and he tells like he'll talk for like twenty minutes about like how like apparently on like maybe you guys covered this but on lucifer rising like marianne faithful was such a, a heroin addict that like oh. she had like all these like little pancake makeup things you know and they were all full of heroin <laughs> and so when you Jeez. see like all that pancake that's just heroin oh, <laughs> it's all she's coated in heroin which oh, is like goodness. that's crazy enough but then also like think about that in like the mystic uh you know vocabulary of this film right. and wow. just like it's just Amazing. So Amazing. he's telling all these stories, and I'm just so I'm like having like the most intense yeah. out of body psychedelic experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watching brand new, you know, 16 millimeter prints of like inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, and he's just told like this long story right. about right. like Anais Nin or whatever, you know. And it's just <laughs> right, it's right. blowing. And my then like <laughs> uh, Demon Brother, and yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. loud synthesizer and like and Bobby Bosley's face being thrown into the fucking fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, the cat being burned alive or whatever. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, it's like real pleasant. <laughs> but 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 here's what. But he he was wearing. I didn't even get into what he was wearing. But maybe this is like a famous thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He was wearing a New York Rangers jersey. Yes, but like mm-hmm. the R and the S were off of it. So just an anger. You've probably yeah. seen that before. Killer. Yeah, um, yeah, that photo. It, it, awesome. it was uh, it, it was like the most intense thing. And t- for that whole thing to end, you know, on Lucifer Rising, which I had never seen before. Wow. Uh, like seeing that for the first time in that scenario when he just told us this story about how he put a curse on Charles Manson uh, so that he would be a spider in the hole curse on Charles Manson uh, so that he would never get out of jail. So oh. like, don't worry about him ever oh, getting paroled. I, unless I take this curse off of him and I never will, he will oh always be in jail, gosh. you know. Wow. Just oh stories <laughs> like that throughout the whole evening. It was just like, Mind blowing. it was I mean, you can't even imagine what how formative this was on me. Just how yeah, much wow, it, sure. we're talking about that blew my mind. Like, whoa, Quicksilver Messenger Service blew my mind. But like, <laughs> this truly blew my mind. It's changed yeah. as yeah. a spiritual being. Wow. Where was he on with the Jimmy Page at that time? You remember? Do you have any Page stories or anything? I don't remember any Page stories, but this is 26 years ago, and I was. Oh, yeah. I mentioned how ragingly psychedelicized <laughs> that was. Did you yeah. talk to him personally, one on one? Yeah, oh, after the wow. afterwards, like I went over and he could definitely tell there was something going on with me. And he was paying like <laughs> he's seen it before. He was paying real close attention. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's because in those you'll find this hard to believe. In those days I was young and good looking, but now I'm just good looking. But in those days I was young <laughs> and good looking, and I kinda got the feeling that he was kind of I don't know, that oh, he was right. making making oh, time yeah. with me. Little Lars hey, Bosley over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um. Well, that's amazing, and Jeez. just the, the oh, guys, yeah. Well, that that that's the incredible story. But I I I did look 
when we recorded. No. no. And? May 12th. Oh, my God. Is that so, the day you recorded? Yeah. 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 So, so he died like within hours of our podcast yeah. recording. So. Yeah. And we were like, anyway. yeah, he's still with us. Wow. That's just. But he wasn't by but like 12 hours. That's crazy. The issue, we need to issue a correction. That's, yeah. Issue a correction. Well, yeah. One fucking spooky. hour. Okay. That's amazing. Well, that's Lars. amazing. That's Lars, amazing. Uh, there should be a short film uh, <laughs> that's made of that incident, you know, with like, uh, I don't know, Michael Shannon or something. <laughs> Trying to think of somebody. Yeah. Um, well, that's amazing. One fucking hour Lucifer, on, on Lucifer Rising that we did for Marcus's birthdays in the archives that we recorded hours after Kenneth Anger left the planet is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but enough on that. Let's get to the matter at hand, the episode for there's, tonight. There's no Kenneth Anger in the movie we're about to talk about, unfortunately. I'm, maybe it might have been inspired by a little Kenneth Anger, though. We don't know that. It might have been. Maybe. Um, it's the same state that he uh, yeah. usually traveled around. Yeah, yeah sure. All right, all so right. let's get into it one fucking hour on point blank. Are you guys ready? I'm going to start the clock if you're all ready for that. Ready. Okay. All yeah. right. Here comes the clock and go. All right. Just a little bit of background on the film uh, for the folks at home, just real quick. Okay. Point Blank is the stylized and cutting-edge crime drama from 1967, directed by John Borman, a director who we've actually covered two of his previous works um, or of his other films on this show before, Zardoz and um, Deliverance, our very first episode. Uh, Lee Marvin stars as Walker, a ruthless crook who is betrayed by his partner Mal Reese, played by John Vernon, and left for dead on Alcatraz Island. After having survived, Walker returns years later to get his revenge with the help of perhaps an ethereal mystery man who <laughs> points him in the right direction um, uh, to a corporate crime syndicate, a syndicate excuse me, called The Organization. Point Blank is a wholly original and truly unprecedented film in the genre. Uh, it's modern, experimental, psychedelic, surreal, dreamlike, and absolutely freaking tough as nails. Um, Brutal. <laughs> yeah, as well, too. So it's a it's a pretty wild combination there. Um, but Lars, I'm gonna throw it to you real quick because you're the uh, you're the special guest here. Um, what's kind of just your general take on this movie, your background with this movie, your relationship with it? Just what's your vibe on this overall? It's a film that like at some point, I think when I was a teenager, I saw like something in like spin magazine or something like listing. This is a cool movie in a way that, you know, for me at that time, like you'd look for any little thing. It's like, where's the cool stuff? You know, um, there, there was like no internet or whatever. So you're in like, uh, I, so I wanted to see it for years and years before I ever saw, you know, got to see a tape of it or whatever. Um, and of course, yeah, I was, I was knocked out by the color, even like watching it on like a VHS tape, which may have even been pan and scan. I don't remember. Wow. Yeah. But uh, the the color palette was the first thing that really kind of, you know, it's so weird. Uh, the fact that the color palette's like that. And then, you know, once you Definitely. sort of get more into it, you realize that you're kind of attuning your reality to a, some pretty odd performance styles uh, in the course of that film. And it has... Um, so, yeah, for me, like having seen it all those years ago and later on, I, I discovered Don Westlake and I read, you know, the the, you know, the Richard Stark books and and, and all of that. The but Hunter, at right? At the time, the I just the knew it as like a, a cool movie that was supposed to be pretty weird. Right. It's The Hunter, right, is the name of the book that it's based yeah. on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I actually read that too. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never actually read that book because I, I see, had seen the movie and I, yeah. I, I just feel like, oh, I've, I've already seen it, you know. Right, right. Yeah, the movie is just kind of better uh, across the board. Um, yeah. Tom, do you have any special uh, relationship with Point Blank? Uh, no, I can't say that I do. I mean, uh, it's one of those titles, you know, yeah. uh, it's kind of what Lars is saying where it's like, uh, it's on the list and you got to check it off the list, you know, uh, a, a few different kinds of lists, but what always caught my eye was, um, you know, something we were talking about earlier, but like uh, movies on the cusp, you know, the different cusps in, uh, in, in, in film and Hollywood. And uh, this was always a, a signifier of a real cusp film. Uh, this in 1967, along with like Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, then in 68 with like, I don't know, Pretty Poison, let's just say. But there are films where um, yeah, yeah. there's a, a darkening sensibility that's going into to genre, Hollywood genre films, major studio, big budget films with movie stars, you know, <laughs> and there's some really sour elements coming in um, from the zeitgeist, but then also from uh, the French New Wave and Italian, uh, you know, just general uh, European cinema at the time. Yeah. So anyway, it was always in that context. And so uh, I always knew that, I, I, you know, you got to you got to check that one out because it's a cusp movie, you know, um, <laughs> it, where uh, no film felt like point blank. But then like five years later, a lot of films felt like point blank, exactly uh, somewhat or more related in context. It was in, it's, uh, it was out of context. Uh, and, and that's the thing that really got me. It's even out of context compared to like Bonnie and Clyde, in my opinion. Definitely. In that sense, you know? Definitely, definitely. Um, it, like Bonnie and Clyde sort of has both feet on the ground. And then this movie does not. It's doing something else. No. Marcus, any uh, point blank origin stories or thoughts? Uh, history? Not really, uh, not too much, except for just the, uh, you know, what the, the Parker thing that the Westlake novels, the uh, the Parker thing it was just sort of interesting to me in this sort of a movie nerd factoid sense, you know, that um, that there's this character uh, in this Westlake books called Parker that it pops up in all these different movies. The first time I heard that, I think was maybe at like QT Fest or something like many, many years ago. Huh. Uh, them talking about uh, uh, QT talking about the the outfit or whatever, and then explaining that you know, Payback, the Mel Gibson movie yep. is a Parker film. And right. well, that's a remake uh, made, of this movie. Payback yep. is a remake. Yeah. Of yeah. Right. Yeah. It's an adaptation uh, of the Hunter. Yeah. Uh, itself. Maybe even made in USA is like kind of like has some Parker elements mm. to it, you know? And then um, I thought I remember Quentin saying something about a uh, uh, heat being like an off book Parker oh. reference, huh. but I don't know. Maybe I just made that up. But um, anyway, <laughs> that just sort of, I, not that I, I don't know anything about it, those books never read them but i just i did love that sort of backstory that there's this like character that pops up in all these different movies and he's never called that it's just sort of a uh ah. movie nerd secret so, right that they're all interconnected in some way well right. let's let's um let's kind of transition into that a little bit like this idea of like how this movie kind of started because it started out like as a pretty traditional i think what adaptation of this movie lars like do you know the origin of what the script was kind of you know, before yeah, the it got two producers, all uh, Chardoff, Chardoff and Winkler, had uh, they had bought the book and they had commissioned the script. If you look, there's like three or four screenwriters on this. Yeah. They commissioned the script um, and they were shopping it around. And I think that they were, you know, what, what you would often do in those days if you had, you know, a script that was that you were, uh, if you're an independent producer and you're trying to get the studios to make something as you would get a package, I guess then as now probably, with a star. So... They were hunting around and trying to find stars that would do it, and uh, um, 
they went to Lee Marvin when he was in England. And at the time, Lee Marvin was making the Dirty Dozen and he was meeting John Borman. And they were, you know, I guess somehow John Borman had read the script and they were talking it over. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess they kind of agreed it was a pretty shitty script. Yes. But the yeah. story, um, the story was right. And the story was the kind of story that uh, Lee Marvin wanted to do. Uh, which is because it's basically very similar to, you know, not similar to the actual circumstances of his life, but similar to sort of his spiritual autobiography of where he was, having been a teenage Marine yeah. who lied his way to get into the Marines. And then on uh, Saipan was shot in the ass two times and like actually was in really critical condition. Yeah. And he probably uh, like killed people oh, in, yeah. in, uh, in the Pacific yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. during I mean, he World was, War II. Like, he was infantry, you know? Yeah. You know? yeah. So he was out there. That's your job. You have a rifle and you kill people. I have a little little couple things on that that I picked up in prep for the show. Um, yeah, so apparently Lee Marvin had the script. Uh, it was very bad, you know, and he showed it to John Borman. And I guess, and he said like, okay, let, like we should make a movie together. Um, and this is an interesting concept. The script is trash. And apparently, I don't know if this is a Hollywood legend or whatever, but like in that moment, he literally took the script and threw it out the actual window. Right, right. And... Um, <laughs> And then they rewrote it, and Borman rewrote it, and it was only just about 70 pages long, which was something that the studio was very concerned about. And I, I just mm. I, I was reading about what um, why John Borman felt that Point Blank was such a good... Just what you were saying about Lee Marvin's background, why it was a good vehicle for him. Because, yes, he was 17 years old, like, in, in the war. He was brutalized. And John Borman felt like Lee Marvin was the type of guy that, like, in a way, he kind of expressed himself through violence, you know, as a way of trying to recapture his own humanity that he felt that he did lose in the war. And to him, that's really what Point Blank is about, right? It's about a man. I mean, we'll get into this because there's a lot of kind of conspiracy theories about if right. Lee Marvin's character is dead or alive. But, you know, Point Blank is sort of, even if it's actually or metaphorically about a man who is dead, a man who comes yeah. back from the dead, to find humanity. So yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Um, and just one other quick little tidbit is that um, Lee Marvin had this relationship with the studio, you know, with the executives there. And he basically MGM, came in. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, with MGM, right? And he, and he basically came in. There were managers, there were agents there and everything. And he's like, so I have final uh, approval on, um, you know, the script, right? I've yeah, 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 yeah. I have, I have final oh, the final cut on the film he had. Yeah, and final final approval of the actors. He had final cut on everything. And he basically looked in the eyes of everybody and said, well, I'm going to defer all that to John Borman. And this is his, John Borman's wow. first American film. Really, maybe, he, what, like he a had just made film? He had just made Having a Wonderful Weekend, the Dave Clark <laughs> 5 movie. Yeah. yeah. That's what always confused me was like... Yeah. What is the guy who only had the uh, the the hard days night for the Dave Clark Five? You yeah. know, uh, how is this guy in Hollywood in the first place, and how is he shoulder to shoulder with what? Lee Marvin? And let's contextualize Lee Marvin somewhat. He had just won an Oscar right. for Cat Blue. Yep. He was in a monstrous hit, uh, Dirty Dozen. Yep. And um, you know, he could do whatever he wanted. Basically, he had a blank check from Hollywood, and that's partly why he and then through proxy Borman actually got um, something that was. Again, on the cusp here, an unprecedented thing, a, a real Michael Cimino kind of deal with the studio to have um, Final Cut because, uh, you know, when I was watching this, I was like, how could, I couldn't see a studio greenlighting any of this. Like, we got to completely gut the beginning, yep. <laughs> like change the ending, you know. So uh, yeah. just to hear that, um, it shows that, yeah, Lee Marvin had unprecedented clout, 
but it's such a Borman must still to this day be just so surprised. Like the Dave Clark five guy had uh, final cut from MGM in 1967. I mean, that's, that's crazy circumstance, it right? It is yeah. weird looking back to be fair. Like the Dave Clark five are probably like the number two biggest group that people were excited about, like to the Beatles, like at in, well, in the like, sort of mid sixties. But I mean, just like, in terms of like the, the hits that they had, they had like big hits. People were like <laughs> yeah. excited about them. I'm just saying it's not compared to like what, you know, later on the, the searchers who would eclipse them, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that they were a big band looking back on them. You, you know, he has like fighting words, uh, Marcus. <laughs> um, <laughs> dress the him. Are, the searchers were chopped liver. Okay. What no are the server, servers? Searchers. <laughs> servers. Um, <laughs> but you know what I heard too was I, I actually heard Pauline Kale actually, and here's our uh, here's our Pauline Kale reference of, of the of the episode that um, she was a huge champion of the Dave Clark Five movie. And that was a huge reason why he was able to um, get people to call him back, you know, or, or was it, was or it that pitched. movie or was it this movie that she was a big, no, 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 she Clark wasn't huge movie. on point okay. blank. Yeah. Wow. Yes. That's interesting. So yeah. she really helped him out again. Yeah. This is the old days where a critic could influence uh, right. somebody in, in, in Hollywood. Yeah. But anyway, I wasn't trying, I'm not making light of the Dave Clark five or anything. I'm just saying I'm that not defending the, them. I was just trying to contextualize. Cause it's like things get, you know, mixed, you know, history eclipses. No, no, no. Like, but my uh, point, you know, my point in all that was right, right. like, it was just, it's a very small affair and he didn't have a lot, any clout really. And then to have unprecedented clout, it's night and day. That's it's, all I it's was. It's very saying. unusual. No, I, he didn't have a track him. record, yeah. you know, like like uh, coming in with like five movies and like one was an Oscar nominee, you know. And, I mean, uh, you know, that's all I'm saying. To have to have Final Cut on your second real film, first that's American film as a non-American is like unprecedented in many ways. And probably and look the at only, the results. The only way that this movie could have been this like avant, you know, in 67. That's what makes it Absolutely. cusp, you know, is that. I do love the, how experimental it is, just in the context of that it just happens to happen in 1967 too. I, mean, I don't know, like it was Borman, like in the LSD. I just love how that experimental thing was in the air. Maybe. Everyone was like, "Let's go." Let's yeah. even the squares were like, "Let's be experimental and try well, something." Blow new. up was yeah. huge. You know, we're talking about Antonioni before, like, um, you know, so blow up was like, uh, it was just a hit. You know, right. I mean, it was a hit partially because it had nudity and everything, but. It had a huge cultural cachet, you know. It was, uh, it, it, and and again, this is all so long ago. It was five hundred years ago, really, in, in the in the life of Hollywood. But uh, things other than box office mattered, you know, like Pauline Kael, like a big critic, yeah, and her stamp of approval, and like getting cultural cachet, like you know, like uh, like blow up was not just. Um, you know a hit like i'm trying to say it was uh it, it was a signifier that you're sophisticated it was a signifier that um films maturing and like it's a prestige picture to distribute in the u.s or something like that so i'm just saying that um you know i don't know if it was lsd that influenced borman necessarily but um i, I think mean, as was, we all know it's an old story world cinema was yeah. fucking white hot mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. with energy at the time yeah, I think you he know. was just really inspired by a lot of different cutting edge stuff too. I mean, drugs or not, I don't. I mean, probably he became pretty heavily, I think, into drugs around the Zardoz era, <laughs> Borman. But that would, uh, it was like, isn't that Cary Grant or like there was somebody? There's a major square yeah. uh, who yeah. was like into acid, right? Yeah, he wasn't. Cary Grant wasn't a square. Oh, okay, right, right. <laughs> but he look. took it as therapy was the context. Wow. But yeah. So okay, um, I don't know if LSD or not, but uh, yeah. but film film in a way film something like a blow up was LSD, right? As in a celluloid context, the, the whole like all all like 
international culture was on LSD. Mm-hmm. It kind of didn't matter. Right. Like Even if indirectly. you actually put the tab on your tongue, you know? Right. Yeah. It, 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 was, <laughs> right. it was a huge contact high. It was happening. It was consciousness was being revolutionized by LSD. And I hate the fact that I just said like such boomerish <laughs> words but it's true well you were on mushrooms in <laughs> kenneth anger's basement here just about See, there 25 go. minutes ago it was the 90s evan <laughs> i know i'm just messing yeah with you. <laughs> it's a different time man the 90s no no no, no. <laughs> um I don't know. anyway so chili peppers so, were popping <laughs> off oh my god blood sugar sex magic was blowing my mind Suck my um all right okay. so wait let's all right let's 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 start the episode over no no okay. i hear i have this I hear, let's just start with the beginning of the movie because Dude. the way the movie unravels is so unique right from the get-go he's hitting you over the head with this right like first you have this like intercutting um sort of montage of the deal that's going down in um, alcatraz and then it's cut with this very weird um john vernon pinning down lee marvin in kind of a homoerotic way to tell him we gotta get the money and this is what's gonna happen so it's like it's this mixture of things that are happening in the past and in the future that's being mm-hmm. cross-cut, which is pretty... And, like, maybe there's no present that's being exhibited exactly. for us as the viewer, <laughs> you exactly. know, for like, a while. Love that. Like, that's amazing. Oh, that's and then, of course, those two elements meet, the past and the present, then meet. And, of course, we see the iconic moment of Lee Marvin getting shot, which you see over and over again in the movie. He gets shot in the jail cell, the abandoned jail cell of Alcatraz, which is amazing. And then it goes into this opening credit sequence that's a hybrid of slow-mo stills... And just other, just really kind of mixed media. Beautiful compositions, <laughs> you know. Beautiful mm-hmm. compositions. Yeah. Him hanging out in the barbed wire, you know. It's just like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that classic and, a Euro style font. Yeah, yes. I did notice that. Yes, mm-hmm. you got that. And then, so you see him, uh, I guess, escaping from Alcatraz, which is kind of weird because it's, you know, I mean, it's it's not in use, but he is escaping the island. And then um, he just kind of wades around in the water for, <laughs> yeah, for like years, for like twenty seconds. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. kind of a weird part. It is weird. Yeah, it is I, weird. <laughs> but it's met I with. I don't know what to make of it either. Cool little stylist style choice here, where he then it kind of flashes forward to him on a tour like boat of Alcatraz, which you're guessing is probably either years or months or whatever you know, past that point where you see him waiting in the water, and then you hear the tour guide explaining to everybody about how it's impossible to escape the island, which is just cool. So it already kind of establishes, um, you know, Lee Marvin as like this kind of, I don't even know, like larger than life kind of badass. <laughs> yeah, mythic. Like yeah. just the, thinking about that, like nothing in this film is part of the real world. Like he's not a person. He's a mythic Hollywood big screen entity. You know what I mean? And nothing, nothing's really happening. I know I was just thinking about that. It was just hitting me. It's like, it's it's uh, joyously living in its own context of film, right? You know what I mean? Uh, and 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 I'm not articulating it that well, but you guys know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like it's um, it's 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 as if Hollywood gave birth to reality, you know, and that's what you're saying. Yeah, well, because it is Hollywood like, reality. Yeah, because the movie and, the, and its themes, like they they, it's so weird how they took this kind of like, you know, whatever source material, and they kind of just injected it with all this style, but they're also combining it with like the real themes and, you know, fucked up shit with Lee Marvin and his life. And, you know, him is mm-hmm. also like an actor. I sort of get what you mean. Like it's a soup of all that, right? Is that what you mean, sort of? Mm-hmm. No? Okay. Me? Huh? What? Yes. Uh, yeah, no, totally. It's just, uh, 
it just i guess what i was trying to say before it doesn't have its feet on the ground at all like uh it's it's, it's up to something you know? completely unique like what yeah. is this movie up to you know yeah, yeah. it's metaphysical almost but it's about yeah. here's what i'm trying to say and then i'll shut up it's it, this film is about itself if, if that makes any sense it's about right. being a huge hollywood movie mythology you know right 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 that's right. an element of it that i was responding to right well maybe now's a good time just to before we get into other elements of the movie to just kind of talk mm -hmm. about this concept that like you know you could make an argument that when he's shot in the beginning of this movie in a jail cell that he's dead and the rest of the film, he's like, it's, right. it's not real life that's happening. You know, it's kind of this weird dream purgatory state or a vision or hallucination. It's like or, that, like that other movie. Um, what is it? Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw it. <laughs> what is that? No, what's that other movie that's Ma like that? Mulholland Drive? Or, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, <laughs> gone Fishing. <laughs> well, both San Francisco films, Mrs. Doubtfire and Point Blank. Um, true. Yeah. No, but uh, I did think of um, The Sixth Sense in a way. Yeah. Uh, right at the very end, and, you know, spoiler alert, I guess the way this is supposed to go, kids, is. Um, yeah, you've seen it. Everyone saw this already. So the end of the film is. It's. Uh, you know the film is has no feet on the ground as i keep saying and and then it just flies away the very last shots of the film um yeah. he just disappears <laughs> lee marvin's character walker just is just gone yeah I love and that. the people who are still there quote unquote just sort of go i guess he's not here so we're gonna not be here and they leave the money here you know you know what i mean and then there's just a wide shot and just credits roll so what i'm saying is um that's when I, it really hit me. I was like, I almost need to rewatch this film. I didn't have enough time to rewatch it, but I watched scenes with this in mind, the ending and just a whole new context of this, like, is he a ghost thing? And then I Googled that and there's all this talk about, yeah. is he a ghost? Yeah. In the sixth sense yeah. way. And then I watched one scene where uh, he first encounters that woman. I forgot uh, who, who that is, but he, the first woman, um, he goes oh, to her apartment. I want to get into that. I want to. Yeah. So we, it was, I'll just set you up, but it's just um, like, he, you know, what does he do during this conversation with her? Okay. He yeah. stares blankly the entire time and she asks the questions and she answers the questions and he's just staring and then it cuts. So please go ahead. So it feels ghosty, you know, to me. That's, yeah. the, that's the art of Lee Marvin that you're seeing there. That, that is scene. what that is. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe just to take a few steps back because I want to set us up into that scene because there's a lot of things happening going yeah. into that scene that are fucking great. And then we'll get we'll touch right on that moment. Um, so basically when the, he is on that boat and he meets this kind of weird character played by Keenan Wynn. Is that his name? What's his name again? Keenan Wynn. The Keenan ethereal Keenan Wynn. You call yeah. him ethereal. BJ Lenz, yeah. yeah. Keenan Wynn. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and um, Keenan Wynn is like, you know, um, in the beginning, he's the one that's giving him this random tip about where to basically yeah. find Reese and that he's part of this crime syndicate now and all this stuff. And he, but, but the staging of how they meet is so weird and everything feels like it's a dream. I don't know. They don't look at each other when they mm -hmm. talk. It's kind of got that European film thing going on. And mm -hmm. then um, what happens from there basically is he shows him, uh, Keenan Wynn shows Lee Marvin this address and he doesn't even take the address. He just memorizes it. He's right. on a plane, you know, he goes to fucking LAX and there's this incredible style moment, which is mm -hmm. just feels so fresh still now of him just pacing down those iconic hallways of LAX. Um, and you still hear the footsteps as the montage cuts to other images. Of loud, loud, echoey footsteps. Brilliant, brilliant yeah. move. 
Yeah, brilliant move to just like the relationship with his wife because his wife has also been taken by Reese. He's betrayed him in two different ways, financially out of this deal and also mm. taken his wife. And so he's really, right. really double screwed over. But then it's like you just see this montage with the footsteps, you know, and I'm thinking obviously like, you know, his name is Walker and he's fucking walking, you know, Absolutely. and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And it's like, sure, it, it works, yeah. you know, and then it obviously it cuts to other shots and the footsteps keep going. Like yeah. he's out of, you know, it cuts away from him to his wife mm -hmm. and you still hear those footsteps propulsively pushing it forward it's it's such a fucking good simple choice to elevate something right just one yeah. little boop and it makes it just like something totally different and so then it builds to this uh, this moment where he fucking kicks in the door he 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 takes her goes into the bedroom and starts shooting the fucking bed thinking that um you know his his former buddy is there which of course he's not then we're getting to Tom's sequence here, which is, again, as Lars said, Lars, if you want to take it, if you know the backstory on the genius of Lee Marvin in that scene, but do, do you know the story? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah, so so Borman said that Lee Marvin w like would never walk up to him as a director and said, hey, have you thought about maybe doing it this way? Have you thought about doing this? But what he would do is he would just do it. Um, and so they were doing the rehearsal, and it was, you know, on paper, if you looked at that, as it's written out, it's a pretty ordinary kind of scene where, you know, uh, in, in terms of like what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but in the rehearsal, what Lee Marvin just did is that Sharon Acker playing the wife would just, you know, deliver the the answer to his questions. And he never actually asked the question. So she's it's basically an interrogation where he's just mute. And of course, he's, uh, you know, Borman calls it like a postcoital scene. He's sitting there with mm. his like gun, his, his fingers, right. you know, holding the gun. It's hanging by the the. Uh, 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 holster or hanging by the whatever you call that thing the chambers um, uh, opened up trigger guard yeah yeah oh, okay. um, and uh and yeah so like lee marvin just demonstrated that that would be better that way and of course um it was immediately apparent that that was the way to do it it wasn't to have like where were you what happened you know right. yeah where's my money kind of sort of where's Reese? stuff yeah what's going right, on exactly. here no instead like he a decides... typical sort of tv detective show episode yeah right yeah you know? right and instead, he, he finds that the way to make it so much more dramatic and say so much more about his character and to do totally. all and to elevate the scene is totally. to actually say nothing. And then and then he's so and she knows him so well that, you know, of course, she's just going to she knows what he's thinking already. And so she just right. like, if, cough if, up. If, if I may just say that that's that performance style, which is is very it's almost like there could be like a manual of like how to be like a tough guy actor because they kind <laughs> of many of them did that. It's like Steve McQueen was famous for just being like taking a pen and going, yeah. nope, not saying that, not yeah. saying that. And just yeah. like, just, just, he just wasn't going to say it, you know, if he wow. couldn't convey it, he just wasn't going to say it. And then later on, yeah. you guys probably know that story of uh, Clint Eastwood on the uh, set of uh, uh, Escape from Alcatraz, interestingly enough. Wow. Uh, do you know that story about, about his whole monologue about his childhood? No, no, no. no. Tell, tell, tell. Well, the, the other actor, like, it, it's supposed to be that the other character says, um, you know, what kind of childhood you have or something like something really on the nose like that. Yeah. And then and then the lines were written out that, you know, in D Dean Reasoner's script, like Clint Eastwood would say, like, well, one time my father took me fishing. You know, it's like this whole thing. And Clint Eastwood tried it and it just never felt right. So he just ad-libbed his response. So the guy says, you know, what was your childhood like? And he said, short. 
<laughs> so that was his whole way of just like truncating the whole thing but it's wow. such, such a better choice yes yeah. and that's kind yeah. of like lee mar it's like it's in the style book of like hollywood tough guys you know yeah, right like, mm -hmm. to do that to just like yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't don't make me fucking carry the water of this exposition basically you know sure. yeah it's just like it, it actually ennobles my character more for me just to be totally quiet. the absence of it is like stronger yeah you know and it's more yeah. poignant yeah. and it's more right? sinister too yeah you know they're, they're they're not opening the book at all like you know he's a closed book to the other characters and to you the viewer you know yeah it's just all behind the blank stare the stoicism you know yeah and then and that that scene yeah. continues and it oh. gets even dude greater it yeah. does it it's, does so i'm gonna killer. take it i'm gonna take it here i'm gonna lead us there because this is one of my favorite moments in the entire film is is right after this point is obviously his wife you know, Lee Marvin's back. She's, you know, totally distraught by all of this. And he walks in and then, you know, in a moments later and finds that she's dead from, you know, an intentional overdose. She's killed herself and, and sees her laying there. Then it follows Lee Marvin, who looks out the window in this beautiful, slow rack focus coming into, you know, when he's realizing that his wife has killed herself, the rack focus comes in. And then, of course, we see the mystery man outside again right through the window mm -hmm. then he walks back into the bedroom and the bed is cleaned it's stripped and she is gone and that is fucking i was just like yeah, this is creepy. david Lynch. and there's a cat on the bed right that yeah. wasn't just me that saw that no there's a cat on the bed no okay, the stems right. weren't yeah. kicking uh, in right. yeah. yeah but can, can i just <laughs> my only little thing in this part of the film is um him staring pensively down at all the smashed colored bottles. Oh, I was about to get there. Liquids. Yeah. In the tub. Sorry. Yeah. It's just, I don't know if we were going to hit that. But oh, yeah. That's yeah. when I went like, we're, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> I know. You know, I know. <laughs> no, but like, really, like, <laughs> this is though? not Hollywood yeah. at all to have a lingering stare at the abstraction of broken glass and like right. colored liquids. Colors. Like a psychedelic light show in the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. But I mean, how fucking cool is that though? Just to show that passage of time in that one moment. Yeah. And then yeah. this weird, like, you know, phantasm tall man outside. And it's just like <laughs> right. super that's like Mulholland Drive or some shit, man. Like yeah. that is some paid yeah. that is some David Lynch must have just really yeah. been into this shit. It's like uh, it's yeah. some winky stuff almost. Yeah. The winky scene. You know, <laughs> yeah. But and then it's it's the same town. It's this same weird, creepy town here it's in true. LA. That is true. But um, yeah, as you were saying, the psychedelic image of all the broken, colorful bottles in the bathtub, uh, I think Borman described... And just the pace, the lingering. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking, just some notes and I'll clam up, you guys hit it, is just uh, I was almost thinking like the quiet loud of like the Pixies or Nirvana almost. Yeah, we talked like about Like this that. movie had, that just stylistically, that must have been very bold and sort of... Um, uh, you know, uh, unfamiliar to, to someone in a drive-in, for Christ's sake. Like, just think Don Draper's watching this at a matinee. You know what I mean? He probably would have loved it. And he actually did watch Model Shop uh, but uh, later in 69. But just like, you know, the average person isn't waiting, you know, for a movie where it's like near silence, lingering, and then explosively loud, brutal violence and yelling and car crashes, you know. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think true. that, that, that uh, the dynamics sonically, uh, I think that's pretty uncommon for the time too, wouldn't you guys say? But it became much more common later, with like French Connection, for instance. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, just to just to put the bow in the on the psychedelic bottles scene, 
is that um, Borman was sort of describing that the choice to linger on that, because color does play an important part in this movie, which we should talk oh, yeah. about, mm-hmm. is that like watching it seep down the drain is like washing her essence, you know, drain away. And he's, he's really, sure. you know, that's hitting him in that way. And that's a great the color of life. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Cause the scene is incredibly gray. Everything we've just seen is like right. completely desaturated. The, the, uh, the, the, the choice with the production design there. And then as the movie goes on and the outfits, the costumes are yeah, gray all of them. The, yeah. And, right. The yeah. costumes are matching the walls, the, the walls. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the colors shift throughout the movie. You see, People wearing green and the walls are green. You see people wearing yellow and the walls are yellow or red and the walls are red. And it's just, it's just such a bold movie that you could see like studio execs being like, wait, what the fuck are we doing here? So <laughs> you know, Bo- yeah. Borman told one story where he was, in, I'm sure you probably heard or read this one too, Evan, where, because this was made at MGM. It was, it was like all the people who came in and were the gaffers and electricians and everything were all like 60 years old. <laughs> their, their kids had gotten into the guild you know, and it I was this. this was not like a bunch of young hip people. It was a couple of young hip people, Borman yeah. and his and his art director, who wasn't even like the, the stated. He was like just his. He was ultimately kind of a helper art director, but yeah. it really is just all these old people. And at one point, and I don't remember who he said had said this. Maybe it was an editor, or or uh, or maybe it was maybe it was the credited art director. But he like went to Borman. And he's like, oh, you know, you you probably didn't know this, but you really shouldn't have all eight of these guys wearing green suits in this green office <laughs> with this green desk in front of this green curtain, you know, as yeah. if it was like some rookie mistake. You know? yeah, yeah. I love that. Hey, 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 kid, let me help you out. Like you yeah. made a mistake, uh, well, yeah. you know, right. nobody's perfect. You know, you, you're, you're learning, Yeah. you know, but, but, but he made yeah. a clear, bold, intentional choice, you know. Right, of course. Oh, that's of course. that's so a good funny. cusp anecdote. But, yes, it is. That's a, that's a cusp anecdote. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. The coin phrase. Well, yeah. When when that scene popped on, that it's a light bulb went off in my head where I thought I figured out where the inspiration for this came from. And right, it was the when the, the guys were all wearing the, the green suits and the background's green. It made me immediately made me think of Red Desert, the Antonioni film, where like yeah. they, they, I think there's a scene where a whole room is gray and there's even an apple on a desk and the apple is yeah. painted yeah. gray. And you could tell that in this film that they did that they would go back and paint things to make. They would paint things yellow so that the yellow would fit in the scene, or they yeah. would paint red. Yep. You know, and the, the car lot scene, or they make it. They make it. They would definitely go back and add not yeah. just costume production design, but like paint physical things. And yeah, yeah. yeah so I, and I was just. Uh, it was reminding me of um, uh, Francis Coppola talking about how he was super into Antonioni, and just all these guys worshipped <laughs> Antonioni in that period. Yeah. And so I guess that was what I was thinking was that M- Lee Marvin and Borman were sprung on Red Desert. Like, oh, I love how can that. we bring these ideas <laughs> to America in a palatable way? And they stick them with a, a crime movie. You know, it's not like a right. It's not an. It's not like a just a um, abstract art house film with people staring at. Well, it's know, not like Model Shop. Whatever, you know? Yeah, it's not like Model Shop. Just two years later, which is just obtuse and 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 it, it's it's it's. It is not a genre film. It's not plugging into anything. Yeah, but, like you're but saying, Demi, Demi was like a made guy, so it was like that right. was in terms of a made art house guy. It, sure. it wasn't a thing right, like right, where right. he was trying to make his name. He came. He kind of came and he got to make that movie because it made good cocktail party chatter for the executives that greenlit it. Well, back to that blow up thing I was talking about, the prestige art house yeah. film, you know, kind of thing. I'm just saying, as Marx's point is just like. And this is so cool. It's like they plugged into a genre. And so does Bonnie and Clyde in a way, too. You know, um, and a lot of films from this cusp period, they were plugging into 
uh, genre, like um, William Castle produced Rosemary's Baby, for instance. Mm -hmm. Rosemary's Baby is a horror movie, mm -hmm. but it's a whole lot more. Yeah, you know right. What I mean? You know, totally no absolutely and and it's it's super cool to see like you know a young director here just like super inspired and using so many different elements of storytelling like using color for storytelling and um one of the and of course you know extreme editing that he uses and, montage. and sound like i was saying i was just about to say yeah sound becomes another huge storytelling tool in this movie because we talked about the walking and how that you know amplifies the character but also like sometimes you'll just hear that gunshot from alcatraz it'll just pop up like in different places mm -hmm. that are you don't even see the visual of it you just hear that yeah. gunshot so cool. and you know you know like the ptsd of that gunshot you know and it just yeah. it'll, it'll it'll punctuate like some other moment and that's just like that's fucking so cool you know that's yeah. just great um so uh, one other scene I think we should talk about that gets talked about a lot with this movie is the nightclub fight scene. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. 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 <laughs> fight club at the movie house. The movie What's house. That? Yeah, it's a club called the movie house. The movie and they had, um, you know, kind of a light show, which was based on, you know, 16 millimeter loops and stuff. So, like you know, Tom. it caught my attention. Yeah. But of sure. course, it's uh, in the foreground is uh, brutal, like um, dick like, punching, like <laughs> knuckle cracking, you know, like uh, jaw breaking <laughs> violence. Yeah. You know? yeah. No, like it, really good, really good, realistic looking. Yeah. Vice, yes. you know, exactly. With yeah. Lee Marvin himself in there, clearly. Yeah. Not a double. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's 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 it's. Oh, of course not. No, he's doing all of his own stunts in this movie and you know, kicking ass and, you know, himself for sure. But yeah, acid funk song with the singer doing the, I don't know, call and response call routine and response. with the, with, with the, the whitest man that yeah. Borman yeah. could find. You know? yeah. 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 Oh yeah. yeah. Like why were, like why were those people at that club? <laughs> I don't know. It's a business know. meeting and, uh, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, I, like a scene uh, I picture. Joe, now I just picture right? Mad Men with like, yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, you know. it's like Mad Men. Like I hear the women are loose here. Why don't we go here after our dinner? You know, it's, it's all very True, Mad yeah. Men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. 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 But of course, um, <laughs> Uh, John Borman, uh, I guess, saw that guy perform at a club, you know, just recreated that exact thing awesome. he saw. Awesome. He just saw it. And said, well, let's just put it, put it all back That's together cool. again and, and do it, which is, which is amazing. But yeah, in the fight scene, you know, of course, behind the, 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 the screen that's projecting all the psychedelic images, the fight scene's so intense, but like in 1967, I don't think you'd really see in like a big MGM movie, like some guy punch another guy in the dick, you know, like that's so right. Like that's crazy. Not with, quite. Well, no. with, and with three, you get egg roll. Uh, Doris Day punches a guy. In the dick. <laughs> yeah. Punches like Tony with an egg roll. Yeah. yeah Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know for sure. There you it's, go. It's so crazy, um, but yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. uh, it upped the ante for sure. And it's still before um, what is it? Darker than amber. It's still a few oh, years before yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's a the great reference. Yeah, that's yeah. In terms of like brutal fight scenes, right? The best fight scene of all time is that yardstick. Movie. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, but it's so cool, like to take a scene right um where it's like okay this could just be a dialogue plot driven scene like where's this guy help me get to this guy <laughs> you know that'd be so boring in any other movie but instead right. we're going to make it psychedelic movie club call and response yelling over that dialogue but can, can i add something so to, to, to just to this um th th there's so many tonalities going on and just one of the ones that got me as we're mentioning this nightclub scene yeah 
uh, I'm trying to articulate it, but okay, we're in Los Angeles, right? It's not New York City, for instance, or London even, or Paris, you know, but it's 1967 in Los Angeles, you know, the summer of love. So what I'm saying is it all feels very empty and deflated. Like that nightclub has that performer and then the old businessman and then like Lee Marvin and like a couple people in the shadow. Like it doesn't have... It's strange. It doesn't have any energy. It's, it's not a criticism at all. It's intentional, I'm sure. But it, it's like it doesn't have ener- the energy of life in it. Like none of the um, right. exterior outdoor right. world. Right. It doesn't have any. It has as much life as like one of these sad, creepy bedrooms of death and confrontation. Yeah. You know, like yeah. like mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's a, a bloodless world devoid of like um, a human emotion almost. Like a dream. Is, am I getting too far out? It's dream. Yeah. Well, yeah it, yeah. yeah, I think it's like totally that intentional. Nightclub, they said it's like they the were most just, dreary nightclub. Good. Right. Well, it was supposed to be set in, they were going to originally shoot it in San Francisco, but then he wanted something to be uh, edgier, darker, emptier, like it have that feeling. So, huh. yeah, I mean, yeah. San Francisco LA, then. I mean, LA. Hellscape, you know? I, I, I think, <laughs> first of all, two things about that scene. First of all, Nobody, there's never a scene where like somebody shows up and he's like, what is this, a nightclub or a movie theater? Well, it's a new nightclub where there's right. like movie, you know, <laughs> nobody, that's, that's never stated. We're just thrown into this world, which it's disorienting to us now. Yeah. And look yeah. at, look at our lives. But like, imagine in 1967, you're <sighs> sitting in, you're in Des Moines, you go to the movie theater to watch the newly Marvin movie and you're seeing this, like yeah. you have absolutely no <laughs> reference. Yeah. This group yeah. of people is looking at this and going, well, that's a little odd. This yeah. group. Right. You know, right. Yeah. right. With everything that we've yeah. been through, and like, I mean, Tom, you literally do that. You've done that. That's your I, job. I live so. that. Yeah, exactly. You're that guy. I'm on tour with that. Yeah. And then no, the other right. thing is, like, and this could almost be like, like a section of a podcast, which is like, how is this movie an allegory of movie making? You know, yeah. Like, because mm-hmm. you could do that about every movie. He's mm-hmm. like, this movie is an allegory of movie making. This this movie is an allegory about hollywood or an allegory about the art of film in some way or the status of film within the economy etc and like it's scenes like this that introduce that reading to me that make me kind of like want to delve in and look at the film and say what how how and why and show me the touchstone show me the mileposts how and why is point blank actually an allegory about hollywood or actually an allegory about the art of film and you know, it, it is these little things that make me go, okay, that's a, this is clearly a signpost. This mm-hmm. whole scene, and and um, in the way that we have like, and and even like individual sort of like scenes and frames from movie history, we're seeing, I like, I feel like those were judiciously chosen in telling some mm. sort of story and presenting some sort of continuity with particularly Hollywood. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I was trying to blindly grab at before too. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, like like the film is about film and Hollywood, Ho- specifically Hollywood, not even film. Yeah, but it's a Hollywood film about Hollywood film, but not in a cynical, um, ironic way. Yeah, which is strange. And I was yeah. saying before, it has sort of a bloodless quality, but there's a lot of feeling. It's a very strange film because there's a lot of feeling in the film. You know, this is Lee Marvin, but um, it's a lot of uh, suppressed feeling. And feeling it's exercised through, you know, fists and guns and bullets. But um, it's just there's a lot of conflict going on. And I think one of them is uh, I think it loves Hollywood and it's not critiquing Hollywood, but it's um, sort of got got Hollywood like on the uh, the operating table and it's examining it. And in a, in a somewhat cold way that I, I maybe that's a European influence. Does that make well, sense? You know, you like, know what like, it is? Because, well, it also breathless. 
I'm sure Breathless and Godard in general, I'm sure inspired uh, Borman. Sure. And of course, Breathless is inspired by what? Hollywood. Yeah. So it's like, uh, that's what I mean. Like the subject is Hollywood uh, yeah. in a sense. You keep going through these, I guess, neo-noirs and whatnot. I think another um, thing that really kind of helps to bring that to the forefront is when you have like a cutting edge, cuspy, young filmmaker pairing with like a more older Hollywood star or established yeah. Hollywood star, yeah, you know? Sure. And like, mm-hmm. that's, what's cool. Like, like I'm, I'm sure that Lee Marvin saw like, Hey, this kid really knows what he's talking about and he's got good taste. And you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to link up with him. And then they kind of, you know, come up with their own Queens plumbing auteur theory vibes a, a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, right. on a different scale. Um, yeah, all right. I know what you're saying. <clears throat> Real quick. One other just set piece. I like talking about the set pieces if anyone else minds, but yeah, let's one, do it. One of the other great sequences in this movie is the confront building to the confrontation between John Vernon and and Lee Marvin. Um, just in terms of like, there's a lot of um, you know uh, just really great visual storytelling to get him up to that penthouse and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just super cool. And like Marcus, you mentioned the parking garages, the paint job, and everything. The little hits it kind of reminds me of Topaz. If now uh, uh, I don't know if anybody's even seen. Alfred Hitchcock's Topaz, but sure. it has Topaz is somewhat similar in its um, yeah construction of a uh, yeah you know of ne'er do wells you know yeah. making a do something you know casing a joint and whatnot. So if anybody's seen Topaz, like there's about ten minutes that are really engaging. Well, that's interesting that you say that too, because and it reminds me of this film. Let's not say that Hitchcock also we should mention was such a huge influence to the European crowd. So it's like Hitchcock right. being kind of you know Hitchcock. regurgitated. It's bouncing others. Europe, Europe yeah. bounces back Hitchcock. Yeah, and then a young guy like Borman is there, and then Hitchcock's trying to stay with it. Yes. Not trying to divert. Yes, him. no, but Hitchcock yeah. was working on that that film. Uh, ah, Kaleidoscope. Frenzy? Frenzy. No, no, no. Like, well, it's Kaleidoscope. Was that what it was called in '67? He was trying to make know. a his own kind of with it film, and it didn't oh, really? really come off. He did uh, some. Um, he did some stills and some um, okay. B roll uh, in '67, he and he was going to use like. Yeah, he was going to use like a new kind of score from Bernard Herrmann. It was going to be more with it, and it oh, all sort cool. of collapsed. <laughs> but anyway, so he was uh, cool. he was in that neighborhood too, and he, I bet it would have been rewarding. And I think that Topaz scene might be the only remnant of late sixties Alfredism pointing out. So, but anyway, so this scene, this scene here to kind of echo what Lars was saying earlier about like the tough guy one hundred and one, uh, you know, like like how to act like a like a tough guy in a movie. Uh, so basically the story goes that in order to get, I guess Lee Marvin didn't like John Vernon very much. He didn't feel like he had like enough in him to really like oh. play that scene. So I guess Ooh. the story goes that during the rehearsal, uh, Lee Marvin just fucking wound up and just punched him in the stomach. Like just bam. And then, and then, and then John Vernon doubled over. He started crying and he said God. that I'm an actor, not a fighter. And then um, I guess <laughs> that when the scene played up again and they're ready to roll, he was hyped up enough and found the energy that was missing right. from the performance before. Right. You know, so very old school. Yeah. Sounds approach. like a little trick. I, yeah. I see where he's coming from. I I, I was wow. distracted with John Vernon. Just like I, I, I was thinking about Animal House and yeah. a sweet movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Right. Yeah. Um, this is like his, fir- is this his first movie? Yeah, Lars? I, I Dirty, believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fuck, that's crazy! That's Isn't insane. that scene where he's in one of the scenes where he's in Dirty Harry is in Zodiac, right? So this right. is like he's the, the second time that yeah, right. And so this yeah. is the second uh, time that John Vernon's been in an OFH 
episode. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I thought the, the I don't want to totally divert, but the car scene I thought was oh, nuts. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, uh, it's cool. yeah. When yeah, it's sure. jerking back and forth, and yeah, just a quick shout out to the cinematographer. I don't know how to say his last name, Philip H. Lathrop, but um, yeah, you know, he he also did the driver, which was just my favorite Ooh. car chase movie. And uh, I just thought this this car this car thing was so unique. But I don't even know yeah. how they did the the back. It looks like he's shifting gears to reverse and forward, and it looks so herky jerky. No clue how they did it. it. Looks so good. So yeah. they they actually fucked up that car. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. that reminded me. It reminded me. Uh, maybe that movie Street People ripped that off. That yeah. scene. Uh, I, that was for you, Lars. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like Roger Moore, <laughs> Stacy Keach. Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, the San Francisco movie. Yeah. yeah. There's a wow. great scene where they, uh, they're, you know, they try out a car at, at the, uh, the, the lot and they total it and they go, uh, you know, like, I don't like the color, you know, <laughs> the car and that's the punchline. And I think that is a wink at point blank. It could be. Um, so, we should yep. talk about Angie Dickinson too, who's also in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, big part of the movie. She's, you know, um, in that, in that scene, you know, it was a big part of that scene I was mentioning earlier. Um, any anecdotes on Angie Dickinson in this movie, Lars? Well, there's the famous one that uh, she had been in uh, Don Siegel's The Killers, right? Um, with Lee Marvin, and he was like, he came up with like a great idea in that scene, which was to actually hold her out the window by her feet, oh, uh, dangle her out of the window by her legs. Good and, idea. Uh, Dude. It, it, it works great on film, but Angie wasn't <laughs> expecting it, and, and she really didn't like it. So uh, <laughs> on the course of this film, they, they just didn't get along very well, and there's that, a lot of that tension, which oh, honestly yeah. kind of really helps. It helps the film generally, but I think it especially yeah. helps it in the scene where she uh, tries to you know, make any kind of impact felt yeah. on him as she beats him up for about eight and a half minutes of screen time. Right. Dude. Hitting the stoic monolith. Yeah. Dude. That's uh, the whole... killer is also featuring Ronald Reagan. Uh, right. You know. Yeah. Right. Uh, He's yeah. great in it too. Yeah. <laughs> Can I make a side note? Don okay. Siegel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and we just mentioned dirty Harry, you know, I was thinking of Coogan's bluff from 1968, which, um, <laughs> which has its own kind of weird quirks and it's a, but it's another kind of, detective movie yeah. genre thing but it has some sort of odd oddball stuff so for further reading folks try um coogan's bluff starring uh um clint eastwood you know yeah. another stoic uh he-man you know there you go um <clears throat> but this th that scene that you yeah. mentioned lars with the um you know where she's just slapping him and punching him and whatever hitting him and he's like he's not even flinching for a second and then he just goes down to sit and watch tv after that yeah <clears throat> which is amazing that. moment too i love but that, that scene what unfolds next is one of the most dreamlike crazy Dude. moments in a movie where it's so disorienting Dude. that like okay now he's running around this house and like she's speaking on like the the like loudspeaker or whatever, and he's like looking mm -hmm. around and like you're hearing the TV and it's getting really she put on the reel to reel of the, like cocktail right. jazz, right? And then she's like dancing all dead eyed like in this room, and it's just so, so otherworldly. And then how does it end? Oh yeah, he he comes up to her and then she whacks him on the head with a pool cue. And they and he gets delirious. This is where it Dude. gets really <laughs> fucking cough syrupy. And it gets a little slow mo, doesn't it? It does. It's like is that just it, my imagination? I think that might be our imagination. I don't know. And oh, then like wow. okay. they they collapse on each other, and then it goes to that amazing <laughs> montage of just the, you know, the like all basically, 
you know, six different configurations of the th- yeah the three people uh, making love, making yeah. love. Yeah, just tur- yeah. turning wild. over and turning over. And- it's about as wild as this wild film gets. It is. I'm with you on that. Yeah. All of that leading. Well, up what to- about the scene when like the the kitchen implements are going crazy? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that part? Isn't that related? It uh, is. It's leading up to. Yeah, the, it's all part of the same thing. Yeah, like cocktail jazz and all I that forgot. stuff. Well, I was thinking it's all this like um <laughs> like this ex- like the malfunctioning of like uh high end yes uh, upper middle class America Definitely. consumer culture. You know, like kind of malfunctioning you yeah. know yeah uh in, in a more subtle way than zabriskie point ended you know but uh when no you, i love that scene and, and again i thought of mad men i gotta say like megan's mad at dawn or something lars marcus that was for you oh <laughs> yeah what what lars when you're mad telling men. your when you're telling your your kenneth anger story did you uh purposefully bring up that song blue jay blue jay way had been on my mind because of this film and that th- this house this is blue jay way this is the oh. house where the Beatles stayed, where George Harrison wrote Blue Jay Way. Oh. Yes. Oh, How did I not know that? This, that's wow. the last Beatles fact no. that I needed to yeah, learn. And now you're done. <laughs> I'm done. And that's <laughs> it, man. Thank yeah. you. Wow, that's so dope. Dude, so they're trapped in Blue Jay Way in that moment. Yeah. When he's that big hit. wooden house at the end. Yes. Like Which, by the way, isn't good. Magical Mystery Tour and, and Blue Jay Way, that's 67, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's when, well, George Harrison time. went to L.A., yeah. yeah, you know he wrote uh, Blue Jay, and like yeah. that, and he stayed there. I mean, it might not have been all the Beatles, but uh, George went on this little weird mini tour of like hippie right. '60s um, uh, Los Angeles, of course, '67, absolutely in the fall or something. Oh, I wonder if that was before or after this was filmed. I uh, I think it was after. Been, like, no, no, I'm sorry. I think probably it was before. a little after. Well, you know, 1967 before. lasted about three years. And <laughs> right. all the shit that happened. <laughs> Can I? No way they got it all into one. Can I mention just an MVP? Because sure. we're you know we're finished we're getting closer to the end of the film. Yeah. You know what was really fun is Carol O'Connor. Yes. Uh, Archie great. Bunker. Uh, you know yeah. too many. Yeah. And, uh, you know I what your him, problem is, Walker. Yeah. 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 I found yeah. him very amusing. <laughs> Brewster. Uh, and he's a the great. Of the house. He's a great. Yeah. Rich fat cad. You know, like cynical. And um, he's all right. Uh, we got. Let's make a deal here. Let's figure this out. And with his fat fingers, with his rings, Stu- and he's studio like, executive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like all the worst kind of pig-faced, like like uh, money, soulless money guys. I loved his performance. And, it, was, it was very amusing to me. And, guys, and he, uh, he he is the yeah. owner of the Blue Jay Way House in the movie. You know, that's his house. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. No, but it's amazing. And then he plays a huge part in the end because he's the one that tells Waka that uh, the big twist, which of course is that you know this last final syndicate boss that he's trying to get to is actually the mystery man that's been helping him the whole time which is this cool kind of you know uh comes back around loop of the movie like an angel but he's also like a like an ethereal angel figure who just like magically appears like he doesn't have a past or a future i love it and he doesn't come from anywhere or leave to somewhere i love that they do different names right like what the guy introduces himself is like yost or something early on right and Mm -hmm. then later on at the end he's what uh no what's it um What's his name? Uh, Foxtrot? No, what is it? It's all those like names are killing me. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a lot of weird names that are popping yeah. up and rifling off. Right. Right. Last thing, I, I did think it's interesting that Borman, like he, he, uh, he did Fairfax. sort of address that that sorry. Fairfax. Right, sorry, right. sorry to cut you off. Which is More a LA. big street in LA. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Borman did like he did address like the sort of theories behind you know is he dead or whatever and like mm-hmm. there's all those moments in there where. That girl does say to him in the very beginning, like, oh, Walker, you didn't die, or are you back from the dead, or yeah. something like that to yeah. him. And, you know, like he, so when he addresses that, 
he basically just says like he's i felt like he was being kind of coy like um like yes i've heard those theories um but i think it's good that it's equivocal you know which yeah. to me means that that he did want it to be open and then you know Lars was saying early on like what's this movie getting at and you know there's all these experimental textures and yeah it was the spirit of the time to like try new things be experimental but they must have had something in mind so i mean that's just my conclusion i guess is that he did intend for that to be a reading and that was that's why they put in all these you know interesting ideas i don't know i don't don't have if there's any clues that they're subtle you know sorry well, Lars? Yeah, like, I, I don't, it, it feels like that's on the surface. I don't even think that's a subtext or that it's even debatable. Like he's dead. You like, think? For, for me, I just don't, it's not, it's not even a question to me. I, I got that the first time I watched it and I still have always just felt it. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like weird that it's like even like up for debate, you know, huh. it's like, yeah, the, uh, it's like there's a back and the forth Wizard about of Oz. It. It's like, what, yeah. is that real? You know, it's like, <laughs> well, that's the final <laughs> note. The final note of the film is he's just simply not there Fanishes. anymore. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's getting back to that sixth. I mean, the sixth sense is very claptrappy and I'm almost kidding when I mention it, but just, um, you know, like that, there isn't any debate with the sixth sense is it's, it's relating somewhat to what <laughs> right. you're saying. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, yeah, yeah, he's dead. And the kid sees dead people. No, you know, I, I have my doubts about the sixth sense. I think there's, yeah, <laughs> no, it's a real cusp. Another episode. Too. Yeah. Um, but uh, Borman yeah. said, I, what it is, is what you see. Sure. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think me- he just didn't want to play his hand. So, you know, like uh, crassly right. by like yeah, throwing right. it out. Which that is also, good. It the, was the subtext of that statement is: Have you ever seen another movie like this before? <laughs> you yeah. know, so there must be something big, I, different yeah. going on. I yeah. um, I think it works also really well, just like you know, metaphorically too. You know, like I I, I do. Right. I mean, like I, I'm fine with it both ways. Um, but we should talk just real quick about that ending moment because it is pretty spectacular as I well too. It. Because like a, any good revenge film. You know, um, and this film has got the revenge and the betrayal end as well, too. Like it's it's got these two things going on. But like like all those good movies that are about that, those same similar themes, it's like that, you know, main character begins to lose sight of really what this is all about and what he's doing. And that house scene in Blue Jay Way is really evident of that, like where he's really like, yeah. what the fuck am I doing? You know, and right. then there's like nothing else left to do at a certain point. You're just kind of moving forward for some animalistic instinctual reason, you know, and you're not, you kind of lost sight of it, you know? And I think that the ending, like the MacGuffin, the $93,000 is not the point. Maybe the abstract revenge thing, betrayal but that bag of money well the bag of money is yeah. just left there at the end it is and, yeah know, the mcguffin sort of walked away walks away from it right which he leaves us with that well it's not even really about that right it's not about this money you know it's about something much more than yeah. that you know yeah going back to what we said about you know lee marvin and trying to find you know that humanity through being a dead person yeah. you know god that's fucking but, or also like you're having a second like- chance at, at life and having a soul by, by being a ghost and wandering the world trying to find yourself again in this wow. godless, violent world. Right. You know what else wanders the world after you die? A movie. <laughs> Thank you. All movies are ghosts. That's our headline. <laughs> and, you, and you know what else you could say about that $93,000? I didn't do it for the money. <laughs> it's for something larger. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 I'm going to find this reading. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, ninety three thousand, and of course, when you die, your brain weighs ninety three. Oh, um, there you go. Does it? There it is. 
That, that's there's no way everybody's brain weighs the same thing when you die. No, <laughs> let's weigh our brains right now. Yeah. All right, is that it? Three, two, one. No, we got two minutes. So two minutes. <laughs> oh my god! I'm on an angle. Put your glasses on. Whoops. Um, okay, I will focus. All right. Um, no, I mean, I mean, I don't know, guys. This is just like a big uh, home run hit for me. I mean, in terms of yeah. uh, a movie from this era. It just feels like oh. it's it's like something new's happening. Something modern and new is happening in Hollywood and this is a huge And even maybe indicator. Borman didn't even know. Yeah. Like like he didn't even he just had a feeling like there's a feeling that something's happening and will be right. happening more and more but like even the film itself doesn't quite articulate and know exactly what it's 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 representing. It's just sort of huh. not it's just not the past at least. Right. Yeah. It's that period it's the period the whole period it's such ferment that whole period that just you just can't help everything is just sprouting yeah. tentacles of meaning and uh, yeah. you know of its time it's a really special and potent time you know despite the fact that yes that's the biggest cliche in the world it really is mm-hmm. but it's true yeah it's a concept album yes <laughs> but it's also a really good 1967 pick it's actually kind of maybe one of the smarter 67 picks for us just like contextually in this project, you well, know, let's thank the viewers. They picked it. Yeah. I mean, know, out of yeah, our yeah. four choices. Yeah. But just I like mentioned this yeah. before the, sure. the time runs out, uh, yeah, just that, uh, uh, you know, you, t- you mentioned that Lee Marvin threw the script out the window. Do we talk about this already? That Borman said that, you know, payback the Mel Gibson movie from was it 99? Yeah. Uh, is, is an, is an adaptation of the same story. And he was saying that the script was so bad they threw it out the window and that he felt that Mel Gibson must have walked by and picked up that script because the one that payback is the bad version. How, of as a five-year-old. Cheeky bastard. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Very yeah. British. Yeah. He must have picked it up. And British slams. Movie. So yeah. witty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Had to get that in. Yeah. Payback is no bueno. That's for sure. Uh, all right. Okay. That was okay. one fucking hour, Tom. It's the all real right. ending. There we go. All right. All right, everybody, that was one fucking hour on Point Blank. Of course, the first film in this project we're doing with the episode number as it relates to the year. Thank you so much for doing that. 1967 is now behind us. We're about to embark on 1968. Um, Cusp 2. Cusp part (laughs) 2. Yeah. And of course, uh, Lars, thanks so much for joining us on this. uh, Yeah, man, it was great. I I thought of you immediately. Like, well, thank, yeah. thanks again for, for yeah. having me. It's always fun to talk to you guys. You must have for this kind of thing. Like, yeah. get me 10 cc's of Lars. Yes. You know, yeah. Blank. I, I, I think that Lars is like just teasing Lars's appearance in the show is what put the thumb on the scale for this one. I mean, yeah, it's a great probably. movie, but I think our audience just wanted to see that probably was a factor because yeah. I said that I on the air. Teased. Uh, live last week, I said, if we do point blank, we're probably going to call Lars up to do it. So. That might and it was immediately the like the front runner. Yeah, <laughs> the phone started blew ringing. All the, other movies away. Yeah. <laughs> the call center. You know. yeah. <laughs> we want Lars. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. Lars, right. Lars, Lars, yeah. Lars. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, stop. no. Okay, let's talk about. You want to join us for Cusp Two? I mean, uh, <laughs> you open invitation. Depends. Okay, depends on which movie you choose. All right, depends what. What? Yeah, it depends what the uh our listeners choose because again that's what what we're doing next week's episode of course is going to be number 68 so we're picking four movies from 1968 and if you head over right now to our instagram uh, page click on the stories you can vote for one of these four movies 
from 1968, and the winner, of course, is the movie we're going to do. So let's get into the four picks, um, and then we'll just talk about each one just for a little bit and what people might expect from the episode. Um, all right, first choice. This is a great. This is this this I think would be a really solid one fucking hour. No thumb um, on the scale. Come on. I think they all would be. <laughs> just Lee Marvin everything. Just okay. deadpan, dude. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, there's some bangers in here. And this, this one no, is I'm little, kidding. This Go is ahead. an underdog. So, okay. Uh, one ahead. fucking hour on targets. Dude. It's option number one by, by Peter B. Of course, we've talked about yeah. Peter B. a lot on the show. But, dude. Right. Well, we're returning. Uh, since Mask, this would be the first return to the Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> troth. And uh, I'm a huge, huge Targets guy. <laughs> it's very cusp. Yeah. This is. might be the cusp of all cuspers in, in a way. Yeah. Um, it's the first yeah, active I, shooter I, movie. I, I kind of... That's for sure. Right. I know. God, it's, 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 it gets ever more depressing and creepy as the years go on with uh, the normalization of, of active shooter mass shootings because uh, that's what this movie's about. And uh, yeah, it's haunting. It's also about Hollywood again. Yeah, dude. Uh, and it has... A, it has overt cuspiness not to belabor this but it's true it has the chafing of modern horror in the form of like yep. uh, a, a, an adaptation of like the charles whitman shooting yep to, in texas in texas it's awesome. that modern horror is chafing with the old warm silly horror of universal pictures and boris karloff yeah and they're both meeting in this film and it's um that is really mind-blowing among many other things and, yeah uh, peter Peter totally shreds uh, in the film. I think it's his best film. It is, by yeah. A mile, so. I agree. But we'll do it. We will do targets. Oh yeah, we'll probably do all of you these know, at, at some, some point. point. We'll do all of these if at some not point. Uh, next. But week. But yeah, yeah, it, it, so it does have that same thing that that uh, tonight's movie Point Blank does. Young director paired with mm -hmm. older generation star, which you know I think yields Absolutely. some fascinating stuff. Um, okay, that's pick number one. One fucking hour on targets. Pick number two. This is a banger. One fucking hour on Night of the Living Dead. Wow, that Never is our. Don't don't need to say much there. Of course, we've we yeah. love George Romero here on the channel. We've done it's Dawn of the Dead. We've done it's Martin. black and white. It's yeah. zombies. It's uh, yeah, texture uh, on texture. Yeah. It's a, it's. I realized I was stoned once, and I was like, "This is an art film." Yeah. It was like I was really engaged in that concept, and I saw it with new eyes because I'd seen it since I was like nine years old. But I was like, like by, by the the last few moments of the film you know ben getting shot the funeral oh no ben getting shot and then it's still photos yeah and then it cuts to live when they show the the funeral pyre burning uh with ben's body and everybody's body. it's like what am i watching so that could be fun and again we could always do that anyway yeah at some point but totally you no know. okay <clears throat> uh okay option number that's option number two option number three we have one fucking hour on head <laughs> oh lordy What's in store for that? C word. <laughs> it's another C word. You've got um, the monkeys and mid sixties pop on its way out, and on its way in is Jack Nicholson and Bob Rifleston for Christ's sake. Yeah, and this is LSD and Tony Basil. <laughs> yeah. and Tony, and Tony and Frank Basil. Zappa. Uh, yeah. yeah, and Frank Zappa's in it, and all kinds of people. And, yeah, it's uh, wacky, and, and and also old school people like Victor Mature showing up, looking confused, wandering around, and Timothy <laughs> fucking Carey. Yeah, you know, shredding old school weird Hollywood. Yeah, uh, heads a big deal. Heads great. Heads a lot of fun. You don't have to like the monkeys. You know. I show people head over the years and they're like, oh, the monkeys, that's really dumb. And like, Ugh. and then they watch the film and they're like, oh, 
it's not really the monkeys necessarily yeah. so right uh keep that in mind it's yeah. a wild movie and again jack nicholson wrote it and to quote him he's like it was cool want a piece of pizza <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well no. it was it was co-written by me in panama red is know? that from the tv cut of heartburn that you just quoted <laughs> Come on, yes, guys. it is. Don't I remember you fuck watching with the TV me. Got a heartburn when they say that. It's amazing. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> All right, control yourselves. You wanna be some time? Urban legend. Yeah. Head. Head is number three. Uh, yeah. Evan. Okay, number three. Uh, that's pick number three. Pick number four, of course, is another monster. Uh, we talked about it earlier uh, tonight. In fact, uh, we have one fucking hour on Rosemary's Baby. There you go. Yeah, we did. We did talk about that. We did. Yeah. Uh, a, a weird animal you've got yeah. uh, a foreign art house director yeah. again the heat of foreign filmmaking in the early and mid 60s yep and uh polanski winds up in the center of hollywood working yeah. on a william castle film uh, you know robert evans too uh, in the, the mix the yeah guy from the tingler and robert evans yeah yep it's an amazing film it goes it, it's it goes far wide and deep it has some i some of the most iconic filmmaking i can ever think of yep. uh and just really killer acting on all fronts um and it's truly creepy That'll probably think be fun. About, think about yeah. the fucking Mount Rushmore of movies. Yeah, that you've just named, I know. and like look at I know. look at how degenerate <laughs> movies are now. I I'm sorry know. to be that guy, I but know. no, 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 like, Lars. Imagine, like, no, Lars. Last week on one fucking hour wants to talk to you. you yeah, know? It does. dude. Last yeah. week we were talking about nope. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, like we get it. I know, but we're, I agreed. I know. It's yeah, just yeah. like. Uh, yeah. It's almost not fun <laughs> to talk about four fucking Mount Rushmore monsters. I know, that's why we know. have to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. know. We but have to I, we have to fight we have to, to fight now and 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 big up the past. Right. You know? And and we didn't choose this battle. This was chosen no, for us. Exactly. You know? yeah. And not to put the thumb on the scale on uh, Rosemary's Baby, but um it's uh -oh. possible we might call up Raimi for uh Rosemary's Baby. Oh uh, shit. Yeah, for sure. She's in the dugout. She's like yeah. she's in the dugout. <laughs> yeah, I can see Rain, that. I can Rain see Rain that. Baby. Shramey. All right. Baby. So um Okay. Yeah, we'll That's see. Fun. That's four. And then next, and then the week after, 69. Well, we got 69. Shit, the we is, got... Are the boys gonna cook up for that? 70, 71, 72. Oh my it's gonna God. be fun. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. as Lars said, it's uh, this ain't the summer of love. Yeah, that's right. We're here at one. Fucking there you go. Um, OK, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, hanging out with us, uh, going to town on Point Blank. And of course, uh, get your votes in now for next week. And then uh, so we can decide on what we're doing. Evan, just to be clear, just to dumb this down, like yeah. they have like 24 hours from yes. the dropping of this current episode. They have 24 hours. That's right. Right. The poll is okay. only okay. active for what as long. format. It's on Instagram, our Instagram account. Right now, if you go to at one fucking hour on our Instagram social media page, link is in the description of the video. Click on the story. You can vote on uh, one of the four of the options. And yeah, the poll is only up, man, for as long as the story is. So 24 hours and then it's cutoff time and then we'll announce uh, the winner and then we'll commit to that and book it and record it. So and uh, also uh, one other quick mention, patreon.com slash one fucking hour. Get on there, subscribe, check out our audio commentary track on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We're lining up the next audio commentary track here, probably in the next week or so. So stay tuned for that. And those are the, that's the only place you're going to be able to get those. And of course, 24 hour early access to all of our episodes. So, all right, everybody. Well, I think that's it. Thank you so much, Lars. Uh, appreciate you hanging yeah, thanks out. Thanks again, Lars. It was and, great. And um, yeah. yeah, man. Very yeah, cool. Man. But Lars, you know what? There's one thing. I don't know if you know, you know about this, right? Um, where is yeah. it here? You do? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Moment of Zen. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moment <laughs> yeah, of Zen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not his first rodeo. Okay, not his well, first moment. Okay, well, we can't leave you out without your moment of Zen. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good rest of your week, and uh, we'll see yeah. you. Uh, we'll see you for 1968. Yes. All right, 1968. All right, bye. Alcatraz came right at the end of the shoot, and I was exhausted. And it was early in the morning, I, I and uh, suddenly my mind was a blank. I couldn't figure out how to stage the, the scene. And Lee saw right away that uh, I was in trouble, and he, he came over and said, um, you all right? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He saw through that right away. He said, leave it to me. Suddenly he was roaring and singing and falling on his face and the production manager came running over to me and said, have you seen the state Lee's in? You can't possibly shoot on him in the, like, like that. And they went off to get him black coffee and so forth. With the pressure off, it took me only 10 minutes to figure out what to do. And I gave Lee the nod and suddenly he made this astonishing recovery from drunkenness to sobriety. He was a director's dream. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Wicked, man.